Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I am your host Crawford Gribben and today my guest is Richard M. Gamble. Richard is Professor of History and the Anna Margaret Ross Alexander Chair in History at Hillsdale College in Michigan. Today we're going to be talking to Richard about his new book, A Fiery Gospel, The Battle Hymn of the Republic and the Road to Righteous War, just published by Cornell University Press. Richard, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Crawford. It's a delight to uh, be with you and your listeners today. Well, it's great for us that you're willing to share your work today. Before we start talking about the book, could you tell us something about yourself? Sure. I have been teaching on the college level for a little over 30 years now. I began teaching at a small Christian liberal arts college in South Florida and then made the move from West Palm Beach, Florida to snowy Michigan about 14 years ago. And I've been teaching here at Hillsdale in the history department, teaching in our core curriculum, teaching upper level elective courses on American intellectual history, on the philosophy of history and some period courses, mostly the Gilded Age, Progressive Era, and on into the First World War and interwar period. And uh, I managed to write as well on the side. My interests in over the years has focused mostly on questions of religion and politics, religion and war. My first book, which was based on my doctoral dissertation, focused on the social gospel clergy in America and the First World War and why so many of them became ardent interventionists, backed the Wilsonian idealist vision of world transformation. And I also, in 2012, published a book about John Winthrop and the model of Christian charity and how the phrase city on a hill entered into American historical narrative, how it entered into our culture, how it entered into American political rhetoric, reaching its culmination with Ronald Reagan. Two other books have come out since then about City on a Hill, and I'm really, really thankful to see that happening and to surprisingly find myself as part of a historiographical conversation. Uh, That's pretty gratifying. And now uh, I've published this book on uh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. It also focuses on questions of American civil religion, questions of war, especially, and uh, the creation of very powerful civil religion in America. Now, this book that we're talking about today, A Fiery Gospel, The Battle Hymn of the Republic and the Road to Righteous War, is an unusual book in that it's got such a precise focus the origin, transmission, and the accumulated meanings of this very famous American song. But in some ways, it's about the nature of America itself in this late 19th, early 20th century period. 
I think that's I think that's right. I'm glad uh, you picked up on that. I read a short review of the book the other day, and it began by saying that the reviewer didn't believe you could write a whole book about one song. And thankfully, he he realized that that actually could be done. It's not a long book, but it certainly has a long history, a long connected history, tracing out uh, the the story of a song that didn't have to become famous. There was nothing inevitable about the Battle Hymn of the Republic becoming famous. There was nothing inevitable about it being applied to subsequent American wars. There was nothing inevitable about it being used as a way to define America as a whole, both for Americans themselves and even for folks around the world. It's one of the most surprising things I found in my research is is how others, especially especially in England, uh, how others adopted the Battle Hymn of the Republic as the signature American song, the definitive American song. And it's so it has been a way for Americans to explain themselves to the world in a way that other parts of the world have tried to explain America. Now, I first sang this song uh, in primary school uh, 40 years ago now in a little hymn book produced by the Church of Scotland that we all uh, were required to use in that in that particular uh, institution. So I, I'm aware of the content of the song, but Richard, just in case any listeners aren't, could you tell us a little bit about what the song text says and does and perhaps where it gets some of its images from? Sure. It has, in its original form, it has five verses. There is a sixth verse that was never published during the Civil War and that Julia Ward Howe and her daughters never wanted to become public. Through a strange twist, maybe we can return to this part of the story later, the sixth verse was picked up in England, and it became a favorite. And if I had to guess, I would say your hymn book as a child had that sixth verse. Uh, but we can we can cycle back to that question. The hymn itself is, and Julia Wardhouse always referred to it as my hymn, my battle hymn, in her journals or her letters, in her essays. She felt felt a very personal connection to this poem. The poem itself is both about the American Civil War and in another sense, not about the American Civil War. She wrote it in a way that I think whether it was her intention or not, she wrote it in such a way that it could be used later in many different contexts for many different causes. One of the surprising things to discover about this poem is its lack of specificity. Some of its images are very specific. Uh, she has images of soldiers, campfires, bayonets, bugle calls. So there is something tactile about what she's doing as a poet. But if we look more carefully, we see that there is no mention here of the North, of the Union Army by name. No mention of the South by name, even though it was embraced as an abolitionist song and she herself had been extremely active in the abolitionist cause. 
there is no direct reference to the institution of slavery. So it, it, it is an indirect approach. It is a highly evocative poem. I like to make a comparison to Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address from just a year, year and a half later. It's also surprising to come to the Gettysburg Address and discover that Lincoln as well never says the North, the South, never mentions Gettysburg as the place where he is, never mentions a Union general, a Southern general, all the standard equipment of a battlefield commemorative oration. Instead, he uses much more poetic, metaphorical, even biblical language that has turned out to be durable, turned out to be applicable to other times and places and circumstances in America. So when we come to the poem, we start reading the poem, we discover that it is, uh, it is a highly charged poem. There is a strong apocalyptic element to the poem. Julia Ward Howe drew heavily from images of both the Old and the New Testament. One of the things that did not make it into the final version of my book was a fairly extended exegesis of the poem. My editor, a very talented editor, he said he felt like he had run into an exegetical wall in that part of the book. And uh, maybe I should publish that separately uh, someday. But it is loaded with direct quotations or clear allusions to the scriptures. And even the words themselves carry a biblical weight, even if they are not direct quotations. We think of the opening line, mine eyes have seen. That is archaic language. It There are some possible sources for that language in the Old Testament. But it doesn't have to be directly from that. She is she adopted the idiom, the very the very phrasing, the, the feel, if I can use that word, of the King James Version of the Bible that everyone knew so well in America in the 19th century. She didn't say my eyes saw uh, Union soldiers the other day. No, it's mine eyes have seen and it's the glory of the coming of the Lord. She could not have been clearer that this is a moment of revelation. It begins with a millennial intensity. And if you'd like to follow up on this, I can talk more about her own theology and what she may or may not have believed about all this. But one of the ways I think this poem found an immediate connection with the American public, uh, a a heavily Protestant, a heavily evangelical American Republic, is that this poem sounded so biblical. No matter what she may have intended behind these words, uh, it sounded like it sounded like it was lifted right out of the pages of Scripture itself. And it changes in tone from stanza to stanza. The mood changes a bit. Uh, but she, she, there's a strong redemptive tone to it as well as she brings in Christ himself. She connects all the way from the story of the promise of the Messiah in Genesis chapter three, all the way through to images from the book of Revelation. 
she accomplishes a tremendous amount in only five short stanzas. It's a, it's a song for the ages in many ways, uh, your book argues, and also shows, I think, that, that the irony of the way in which it gains such popularity with the evangelicals that dominated so much of mainstream Protestant life uh, in the period, because that was not her background, was it? Can you tell us something about Julia Ward Howe? What, what kind of religious background did she come from and why did that matter in terms of the composition of this poem? Julia Ward Howe was born in New York City in Lower Manhattan in 1819. And that surprises some people because we think of her as one of the most iconic figures of Boston in the 19th century. But Boston was her adopted home. She was born in New York into a very devout evangelical Episcopal household, especially her mother, her mother and her mother's family. They were a Southern family. Uh, they were very devout. Uh, her father, after his wife's death, after Julia's mother's death, became increasingly devout. Uh, he was careful to hold family worship with his children and his servants. He wrote very moving letters to his sons and to his daughters, encouraging them in the faith, uh, encouraging them to be faithful in services, uh, to read the scripture, to pray. Julia herself was baptized in the Episcopal Church in New York, and she was confirmed. She was received into full communicant membership. And since, since I finished writing that book, I've actually been through these archives in New York, and I've seen her name written in the church book, uh, the record book. And that is striking because later in life, uh, as still a young woman, uh, newly married, she turned, she turned fairly passionately away from her evangelical upbringing. Her mother's brother, her uncle, was a very important Episcopal minister on the conservative side in the 19th century, and she turned against him. She urged her own sisters uh, not to listen to their Episcopal priest. And when she moved, when she married and moved to Boston in the early 1840s, she was brought into the inner circle of American liberal Unitarianism and American transcendentalism, which were almost interchangeable at that moment. She was extremely well-educated as a child. Her father provided her with an almost unparalleled education for a young woman in the early 19th century. She was fluent in German, French, knew a great deal of Italian. She played the piano well. She was a gifted singer with a trained voice. She studied philosophy. She studied literature. She worked very actively as a poet, but also as an essayist. She published a book review when she was only 16 years old in an important Episcopal magazine in New York. Really astonishing. And she maintained this self-education, what became self-education the rest of her life. She became devoted to German idealist philosophy. 
She was reading Kant for herself in the German. She was reading Auguste Comte uh, in the French, reading positivist philosophy and became something of an American Comtean in the early 1850s, but later abandoned that. She read Goethe, Schiller, Schlegel, Fichte, uh, Hegel, but didn't have a taste for Hegel. Truly a remarkable intellect, and it's a shame that there is no intellectual biography or religious biography of Howe, and maybe I'll be able to remedy that someday. All of that to say that by the time she was a young adult, she had abandoned every doctrine of the Apostles' Creed. She perhaps still believed that God was the maker of heaven and earth, but she denied the virgin birth. She denied that Christ was truly God. She denied the atonement. She denied uh, the miracles of Scripture. She was a very progressive liberal Unitarian. Some of your listeners may be familiar with the name uh, Theodore Parker, the very prominent radical Unitarian uh, of the 1830s, 40s, 50s. She was a member of his church. She was then a member of James Freeman Clark's church in Boston. Clark was extremely well known in American religious and intellectual circles in the 19th century. He, too, was a radical uh, liberal theologian. So for her, with this background, by here in 1862, she wrote the poem in November 1861, it was published in February uh, 1862 in the Atlantic Monthly for her to pen a poem which appeared to be so biblical, at least on the surface, for that poem to have been embraced uh, by evangelicals. It became a favorite of American Methodists to have it so closely identified with the gospel when she herself uh, denied every Every basic tenet of, of historic Christianity is ironic. Uh, I don't know if it puzzled her. I, I think, I think there, there was an evangelical, if I can use that word very loosely, uh, as everybody does, uh, there's an evangelical component to her. She was something of an evangelist for a cause and she, and, and her circle often made common cause with, with evangelicals in, in, in reform movements. I, I think it disturbed her, and I know it disturbed one of her daughters, that so many premillennialists adopted the Battle Hymn of the Republic as an anthem of the literal imminent return of Christ. There was a group, there was a group of evangelicals in England, uh, who loved the battle hymn. They were premillennialists and they wrote glowing letters to Julia Ward Howe. And I know it disturbed her daughters that her, her poem was adopted by a group from whom Howe herself felt totally, totally alienated. And, and she certainly denied the literal second coming of Christ. Tell us, Richard, about the moment in which the poem was composed. This was a story that Howe loved to tell, wasn't it? She returned to it again and again through her life as she spoke 
or even preached um, on occasions that celebrated this great text. She did. Uh, my sense, and maybe I'm reading between the lines a little bit, but my sense is that this hymn was both a burden and an opportunity for her. It was, she struggled because this is what everybody wanted to hear about. Everybody wanted to sing it in her honor. And, and I, and I sensed that early on that bothered her. But she became a very popular public speaker. She hired an agent. She traveled on the new transcontinental rail links across America. Uh, she was, she was very successful as a speaker on the Lyceum circuit in America. And she gave in to public enthusiasm for the battle hymn. It was the poem that had made her famous, made her a household word and a household name. And she turned it to profit. I'm not saying she did that cynically, but the poem became her gateway to a very large and profitable audience. She wrote the poem in November 1861 when she traveled to Washington during some pretty dark days for the Union cause. When she traveled there with her husband in the company of the governor of Massachusetts, her pastor, uh, James Freeman Clark, some very close family friends. Uh, they all went down to Washington on business with the uh, Christian Commission. I'm sorry, the U.S. Sanitary Commission, two competing organizations or or two very different kinds of uh, of of organizations uh, to help soldiers and sailors during the war. They traveled down to Washington as part of the U.S. Sanitary Commission, and the wives came along on this trip in order to see the city. It wasn't her first visit, but she wanted to see the city, and she particularly wanted to see it in wartime, to see a national capital under siege, uh, mobilized for war. We have to remind ourselves of the geography here. Washington, D.C. sits on the Potomac River, and the view across the Potomac was the estate of the Lee family, what is now Arlington National Cemetery. The, the enemy territory was directly across the river. And when she came to D.C., she arranged for trips to the battle encampments. There was a, a union the Union held, Union forces held a part of the Virginia territory there along the Potomac. And she made visits out to the encampments. She wanted to see some of the Massachusetts regiments. Uh, there were people she knew. There were uh, officers she knew, and she wanted to see them. She visited some grand military displays uh, organized by McClellan's army. And it was after one of those visits when she had been caught in a near a skirmish with some Confederate uh, uh, cavalry that and, and she was caught up in a throng of soldiers uh, marching along. It was that night when she got back to the hotel in D.C. that she was awakened early the next morning, uh, a fairly fretful night and. And she often did not sleep well. She suffered throughout her life with uh, severe depression. And she woke up in the early morning. She found a scrap of paper 
She found the stub of a pencil, as she said, or, or maybe a pen. And this rhythm, the rhythm of the John Brown song, John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. The rhythm of that soldier song, a favorite of the soldiers, was pounding in her head. And she claimed that this later claimed that this poem came to her as a revelation. It came as a divine inspiration. She often experienced uh, ecstatic visions, and she claimed that this was one of these visionary moments. And the words flowed very quickly for her. She wrote out these six stanzas, five of which were published. She made fairly minor changes to it and sent it off to her publisher at the Atlantic Monthly. She had already published some essays and a couple of poems in the Atlantic Monthly, and they accepted it, paid her $5 for it, which was not a small amount, about the price of the train ticket from Boston to Washington, D.C. They accepted the poem. Uh, the editor of the Atlantic Monthly gave it its now famous title, The Battle Hymn of the Republic. And it appeared on the front cover of the February 1860, uh, 1862 edition of the Atlantic Monthly. Previews of this issue were available to the press already by late January. And it appeared in newspapers all over the United States from coast to coast. Uh, even before it appeared on the newsstands in the Atlantic Monthly. So it starts out very much as a sectional song, doesn't it? A song of the North in the Civil War. But around 50 years later, thereabouts, you say in the book, it, it's been considered as a potential national anthem. How does that come about? How does this become a, a song that in a way unites what was still a very divided America? That, that's a great question, and that's a question I still turn over and over again in my own mind. I think my understanding of it and my explanation of it is necessarily impressionistic. It is extremely difficult to document how a song is embraced person by person, section by section. I would say one of the contributing factors was the Spanish-American War. The Spanish-American War at the time, in 1898, was often depicted as maybe celebrated, we could say, embraced as a moment of deep national reconciliation. Now, maybe that was said more in hope than in reality, but it was it was often pointed out that Sons of the South and Sons of the North were now fighting in a common army, in a common cause against the decaying Spanish Empire. And they were victorious uh, in that war. And surely then, the, the hope was, surely then, that having once again sacrificed their, their lives, their blood together in a common cause, that America was truly reunited. And the Battle Hymn of the Republic showed up everywhere in the spring of 1898 as America headed to war. It showed up without commentary, without explanation, on the front pages of newspapers again, which it hadn't for decades. 
it was it seemed that it was supposed to be self-explanatory why this battle hymn would now reappear in the press. It was quoted on the floor of the House and Senate. It was sung in the halls of Congress uh, as congressmen waited to vote. And there were uh, new arrangements of it available, sheet music available from leading publishers. It appeared in magazines and so on. So it it became a famous song of American military victory. It became a favorite of some very high-profile people, especially Theodore Roosevelt. And when he was president, he got behind a national campaign sponsored by, uh, actually by the author of the uh, the Br'er Rabbit stories, uh, Joel Chandler Harris, a very good friend of Teddy Roosevelt's. Uh, Harris had, he, he's a Southerner, uh, writing for a Southern periodical. He promoted the Battle Hymn of the Republic as the best candidate for America's first official national anthem, believing that it spoke for all America. Uh, it seems it seems hard to credit this, but so many people said at the time, uh, early 20th century, said that there was not there was not a hint of sectionalism in the whole in the whole song. That would come as news to an awful lot of Southerners with long memories. But uh, but that that that's what was being proclaimed about this. This was the hope being extended to this to this anthem. And Harris said, let's let's get behind a national campaign. He wanted the young boys and girls reading his magazine to get their schools behind it. Let's start a campaign and call upon Congress to make this the national anthem. Teddy Roosevelt uh, put his weight behind it. He, he wrote a letter to Harris, and that letter was republished, calling upon uh, America to make this battle hymn uh, the national anthem. He said the the tune the tune might, might not be as good as Dixie, but he said the words could not be paralleled in in the battle anthems of any nation. And of course, in 1931, it's not adopted as the national anthem, is it? But it does become an American scripture. Where is the manuscript version of the hymn today? Yes, today. And this changed while I was researching and writing the book. Uh, its location was unknown when I was still writing. It was in private hands, uh, but it, it's exact. Uh, it was not on display anywhere. It was certainly not in any museum. Uh, it belonged to the Forbes family. But as I was working on the book, uh, nearing completion, it suddenly reappeared uh, in a museum. Uh, it became part of a display at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. The Green Foundation, the Green family, the family that owns Hobby Lobby, they purchased the Battle Hymn of the Republic manuscript at auction. I forget the figure now, but I think it's something like seven hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars. And they wanted it for a section of their museum that focused on the impact of the Bible on culture, particularly the impact of the Bible on on American history, American culture. And it is displayed there. I think you can find a picture of it online. Uh, there may be even a, a brief video about it online. And there is her 
scrawled copy from that night at the Willard Hotel in Washington, D.C. in 1861. There it is with a short description about it uh, under under glass, along with these other uh, other documents, other mementos of American history that point to how the Bible has been used uh, by Americans, by very prominent Americans. Tell me, Richard, do you think that Howe thought her hymn was as inspired as scripture? Ha. What a what a good question. And it's making me hem and haw, which must mean it's a very good question. I don't often I'm not often at a loss for words. I can think of two ways to approach that question. She she had these visions, she had these millennial visions on into old age. And considering how maybe considering how loose of an idea inspiration was for her, I think she might have believed that these were direct words from God, from the from the from the spirit of God. But then I would have to pair that with my knowledge of her view of Scripture. She fully embraced the German higher criticism of the 19th century. She and her pastors, her close circle of associates, they would not have believed in the verbal inspiration of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. For them, Scripture was a radically historical document. It was an, a, religious auto, a, a religious autobiography of the Jews and then uh, a religious account of the idealism of the early church. So she has a low view of inspiration to begin with, view of scripture to begin with. So perhaps those two ideas do meet in ways I had never thought about before. Maybe poetic inspiration was a loose idea for her, and, and maybe her poetry was as divine as any other uh, creative human, human, work of human creativity. Uh, a great work of human creativity. Well, Richard, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Before we wind up, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment? I'd be happy to tell you. And this is this is a debut. Almost nobody knows this. This is fantastic. It is. Um, you know, uh, this will be a test. If everyone goes to sleep at this point, I will know to abandon the project. It's actually related to Julia Ward Howe. And I mentioned that I, I would someday like to do an intellectual or religious biography of her. I, I think a way for me to do that might be an indirect path. In, from, from 1879 to 1888, they're met in Concord, Massachusetts, famous Concord, Emerson, Thoreau, Hawthorne, that Concord, Massachusetts, outside of Boston. They're met there every summer something called the Concord School of Philosophy. Now, it may not shock, shocks me, it may not shock anyone listening that there has never been a standalone history of that uh, very important, those very important summer sessions. They were founded by none other than Bronson Alcott, uh, father of Louisa May Alcott. 
The sessions were held on the property of Orchard House there, made famous by Louisa May Alcott. They were organized by uh, Frank Sanborn, and uh, those who, who have read my book know how important Frank Sanborn was to the abolitionist movement. Uh, he, be, he was a very important newspaper editor, a very important literary critic, and he was the real organizational genius behind the Concord Summer School. And then there was one of the St. Louis Hegelians, William T. Harris, who actually moved from St. Louis to Concord in order to run these uh, summer school programs. William James delivered three lectures on psychology at this, uh, at this summer school. But it also drew a number of very prominent women lecturers, public intellectuals, some whose names are almost completely unknown today. Uh, Elizabeth Palmer Peabody, her name might be well known to those who study American transcendentalism. Edna Dow Cheney, very little work done on her, but again, well known in her own time. And Julia Ward Howe. She lectured frequently. She lectured on Emerson. She lectured on Dante, on Goethe. She lectured on Plato, the treatment of women in Plato. And she lectured on Kant, gave two lectures on German idealism uh, at the Kant Centennial Celebration at the Concord School. This is just barely the surface of what was going on there. And it was covered by newspapers. Newspaper reporters attended these sessions, covered them for newspapers all across the country. Some ridiculed it and some dismissed it as mere nostalgia for the old days of transcendentalism. But it was a very serious effort to provide an alternative, a philosophical idealist alternative to the deadening scientific materialism, agnosticism, radical skepticism of the late 19th century, which troubled them deeply, troubled this, this uh, older generation of philosophical idealists very deeply. They feared for the fate of American civilization, and they tried to reach American college professors and students through these summer programs to rejuvenate American life and a certain kind of American spirituality. So it's my goal to get into the archives in Concord and uh, work on these. Uh, I mean, what's so, so amazing about digital resources now, what I can get to in newspapers is almost overwhelming. So that's the project. And I hope it doesn't take six years the way the Battle Hymn book took. But uh, that's what I'm working on. Well, that sounds fantastic. Uh, Richard, thanks very much for coming on to the show today to share your work and for being willing to talk about it. Thanks for your time and take care. Thank you so much, Crawford. It's been a real pleasure to be with you. It's been great. And listen, thanks to everyone else for tuning in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.